stories carry with them great power. They can transport us into the light and into the dark. And into a place in between, a land of shadows. It is in this land where the macabre and the strange reign. With tales of terror. Tales of hope. Tales of the whimsical. And the weird. These are stories told in the shadows. And we are the Shadow Storytellers. On a long enough timeline, the past never stays buried. Be it through natural forces shifting what was once lost to the surface, or human curiosity seeking to dig up forgotten secrets, the past has a way of coming back to us. Sometimes this return is welcome, expanding our knowledge and understanding of ancient worlds, or at least our wallets if a treasure or two is found. Other times, though, we might find that some history is better left buried. Today, we take a trip to Ireland to follow a group of intrepid explorers who are about to make a fateful discovery, in a story that we call Alexis Bradley Reporting. This is Alexis Bradley reporting from the shore of Termishkey, an uninhabited island located approximately 25 miles off the northwestern coast of Ireland. The wind out here is quite intense, and the ground would be almost impossible to walk on without the thigh-high waders our entire crew is wearing. I'm honestly a little afraid of tipping over right now and not being able to get back up, but that's to be expected given what brings us here. You see, this little three-square-mile island is made up almost entirely of unexplored peat bog, and over the course of this expedition, Doctor of Archaeology Ava McElroy will become the first to document the history preserved here, and will be bringing you her findings day by day. Now, if the name Termishki sounds familiar, especially to our American listeners, it's probably because this isolated stretch of marshland gained some international notoriety in 1983 with the disappearance of Linda Milton. Milton was a college student from Nevada who was vacationing in Ireland. According to the two friends who were traveling with her, the group had an argument, and instead of going surfing with them, Milton struck out on her own to take a historic boat tour. When she failed to return to the hotel that night, her friends reported her missing. Police questioned the employees of several tour companies operating out of the Donegal area, but their first and only lead came when an unlicensed tour guide came forward and confessed to carrying Milton to Termishki in his personal boat, and then leaving her there because, he says, she refused to return to the main island with him. Almost as soon as rescue workers began searching Termishki, they discovered the body of a young woman matching Milton's description, who appeared to have drowned in the bog. When her friends were asked to identify the body, however, they insisted that it wasn't her. Attempts were made to match the remains with other missing person reports without success, until carbon dating revealed them to be over 2,000 years old. The acidity of the bog had preserved them in near-perfect condition. No sign of the real Linda Milton was ever found. That's as much as was covered in the news of the time. But have you ever known me not to do my homework, listener? Of course not. And the story gets even stranger from there. According to the records provided for the planning of this dig, the search of Termishki never extended more than 20 feet in from the eastern shore. Why? Well, the closest thing I've gotten to a direct answer is some vague speculation that the Donegal County Police Department didn't have the right techniques or equipment for a safe and thorough search in the 80s. But that seems unlikely, 
About a sixth of Ireland is covered with peat bogs just like the surface of Termishki, and harvesting peat as a fuel source was common practice until just these last few years. Navigating marshland would never have been an unfamiliar task for emergency crews in this part of the world. Not only was the search for Milton dropped inexplicably fast, the careers and lives of just about anyone associated with it were never the same again. Both of Milton's friends returned to school but dropped out before graduation, citing burnout. The same rescue crew that uncovered Milton's Iron Age lookalike was sent out a week later in search of a group of lost hikers on the main island, and somehow managed to become so lost themselves that all but one of them had died of dehydration before another crew found them. The coroner who first examined the Iron Age body quit her job, divorced her husband of 27 years, and joined the Irish army in her 50s. She suffered a heart attack before completing basic training. Perhaps strangest of all, the unlicensed tour guide, described even by his friends as an unrepentant con artist and womanizer, took the witness stand in spite of his lawyer's best efforts and begged for life in prison. He was sentenced to 30 days after the body was found not to be Milton's, and the day he got out, he immediately joined a monastery, which then burned to the ground inside of a year, leaving no survivors. Did all of these people see something so disturbing that it shook the core of their very identities? Was someone or something actively working to eliminate those who had seen something they weren't supposed to? Or was it really all a bizarre coincidence? Now, nearly 40 years later, this joint Irish and American endeavor has finally received permission to survey and excavate Termishki for answers, not only to this infamous cold case, but to who the island's ancient inhabitants may have been and where they went. Will we find the real Linda Milton? Will we discover a lost utopia? And is there any truth to the rumored curse of Termishki? Stick with us to find out. Personal notes. We've just settled down for our first night on the island, and already this is... an experience. <laughs> Most of today went to setting up the equipment, including the wooden platform we're using as a foundation for our camp. Right now, I'm sitting in a pup tent, which is tied down to the slats of the platform because there's nothing to hammer a stake into. I'm bundled up in both my parka and my sleeping bag, and utterly dreading the inevitable moment when I'm going to have to get up to pee. It's 31 degrees Fahrenheit outside, the wind is literally howling, and everything is wet. I think it's only the salt that's keeping our campsite from frosting over. I feel like... Shit, it's hard to say it even in this recording. I feel like such a fraud out here, for how much I'm already craving a hot shower. Even a hot hand washing. I was betting on myself to last at least 36 hours into my honest-to-God dream assignment before thinking about things like that. 18, very least. We're at about the ten and a quarter mark now. And that includes the heated boat ride out here. But seriously, I am grateful to be here. And excited and intimidated as hell. Modern humans only get to dig this place up for the first time, once. And out of everyone in the whole world, I'm in charge of documenting it. The camp platform is going to be moved as we work our way across the island, so in a few days, 
We'll be checking out the land it's on right now. I could be sleeping a couple feet above Linda Milton's remains tonight, for all I know. Assuming, you know, that I can't sleep. Let's see, what else? Dr. McElroy, the person in charge of actually doing the thing that I'm patting myself on the back for being here to watch, she's commanding. It's kind of magnificent to watch. I mean, I've done pieces following a lot of scientists, and most of them are used to keeping their work running on scraps, and a hope, and a prayer. So, whenever there's something big going on, and now suddenly they've got resources and a team to manage, they either don't, they just get right to their bit of the work and expect everything else to sort itself out, or they explode and treat all their poor interns the way they wish they could treat their grant managers. Five minutes off the boat, Dr. McElroy had everyone right where they needed to be, like she'd done it a thousand times before. Her enthusiasm is infectious, too. Not that I needed to be infected, not for this. But when she asks you to do something, you know what it means. For her, for you, for humankind. And even if it's digging a trench in the mud or getting the coffee cups off the boat, how can you say no? She's planned for everything. Not just the job itself. Everything. When we lost the light and started setting up the camp stoves, she had a deck of cards ready to get everyone playing charades, and somehow it worked. Even if I didn't get most of the references her team were throwing around. I tried to play along for a while anyway. I'd always rather learn something new than complain about other people already knowing it. Plus, I figured maybe I'd get to make a good impression by knowing something sooner or later from another story, but... Honestly, I don't think Dr. McElroy likes me much. She makes a lot of American jokes, which... fair enough, really. But it's like I can't get far enough out of her way. I think it's because we all know that most of the money for this dig is coming from my producers. It's not like I have any say in that. Even Riley, my boss, doesn't make the final decisions when there's money involved. But putting up with me is the price Dr. McElroy has to pay to do her job. Not exactly an ideal position to make a good impression from. I guess someone has to wear the grant manager hat. Maybe I do deserve it a little. I don't know. <sighs> She's so cool. Come on, Alexis. Focus up. You've got this. I've got this. I do have to pee, though. This is Alexis Bradley. It's 10.22 in the morning on the second day of the Termishki dig. And we've... Uh, we've found her. We think. More accurately, we've found the body of another young woman matching Linda Milton's description, which of course turned out not to be a sure thing at all last time. But speaking as someone who spent a lot of time looking at both the last pictures taken of Linda Milton and the Iron Age body which now lies in a hermetic chamber in the National Museum of Ireland, I have to say this one looks much, much more like Milton than her last look-alike. How did we solve this decades-old mystery? Well, 
Gary, our craft services guy, was just bending down to disassemble the table we were using for breakfast, moved a submerged rock that was in the way of folding up one of the legs, and found himself face to face with the spitting image of our missing person. After screaming for a little while, Yes, Gary, you did. Like a normal person. He did the responsible thing and called Dr. McElroy over to do damage control on whatever he might have disturbed. Dr. McElroy emphasizes that she does not work directly with any law enforcement agency, so her assessment of modern remains will have to be corroborated later by forensic specialists. But the deceased does not appear to have been pinned under the rock, either intentionally or accidentally. There's a significantly sized pile of rocks here, and moving one of them caused a partial collapse, which seems to have agitated the sediment and brought the free-floating body to the surface. This all happened, wait for it, within five feet of the original search area. The team tells me it looks as if the deceased was building a structure out of the rocks, but drowned before she could complete it, most likely due to exhaustion. The rocks would have had to be carried from the shoreline into the wetland, and there are enough here to account for hours of back-and-forth trips. Dr. McElroy, do you believe Milton, if this is indeed her, could have been trying to use the white rocks as a contrast against the green and yellow sphagnum moss to create a signal for rescue? Uh, the doctor is now giving me a dubious gesture and pointing to the shape of what's left of the pile. Now she's waving for me to back off, so we're going to do that. Uh, keep checking back with us for the results of the dental record check. Personal notes. Well, shit. And also, yes, but also shit. We found her, probably. And we're going to fill in the blanks in her story and get closure for her family, kind of. And we're definitely not leaving empty-handed. That's all... good. But Linda Milton was the whole reason I got this assignment. No one would have sent me out here to document an archaeological dig without a semi-famous cold case associated with it. She was the mystique that was going to bring people in so that I could trick them into paying attention to... Oh, I don't know, millennia of undiscovered human history? Centuries of scientific refinement on display in all its glory to preserve that history? Just while they're waiting around for the main event, of course... I can't even sit on it and pretend that we found her at the end instead of the beginning, because I'm supposed to send material for this whole daily updates gimmick. Plus, pretty soon we're going to have police joining us, who are probably going to become pretty relevant to the unfolding of events. Screw it. I'm still here, and the dig is still happening, and I don't need a lost tourist to tell people why that's the coolest thing ever. I am going to take that infectious enthusiasm of Dr. McElroy's, mix it with mine, bottle it, and pour it down the mic myself. Even if I can't get her to say a usable word into it for as long as I'm here. Yeah. This is Alexis Bradley, and it's just past two in the afternoon on the third day. Dr. McElroy has identified a solid structure buried about a meter and a half, so uh, that'd be about four and a half feet, below the surface of the bog. Right now, she and her archaeological team are mapping the structure's footprint by lowering rods carefully into the marsh at intervals of about an arm span. It's slow, painstaking work, but essential to planning an excavation. Without detailed knowledge of what we're going to be digging up, 
the equipment necessary to move this amount of earth could just as easily destroy the finds we're hoping to preserve. It's a labor of... Oh my god! Uh, Finn, one of Dr. McElroy's interns, has just fallen into a... a crevasse, a, a sinkhole. He's completely out of view. He, he was lowering one of the rods when the ground gave out under him. Uh, Dr. McElroy and several tech assistants are now working to shift the peat around the spot where he disappeared and create a stable opening to reach him. This is a difficult task, because the high water level makes the earth not only soft, but extremely heavy. We don't know at this point whether Finn is injured, whether he has any access to air, or how deep he might be. Dr. McElroy is waving for the excavator now. Normally, the team wouldn't risk bringing in the heavy machinery with this little information, but at this point it may be the only way to get Finn out alive. The scoop of the excavator is digging into the patch of turf that the team wasn't able to move manually, and I, I could be wrong, but it sounds as if it's scraping against something a, a lot harder than Pete. The, the scoop is lifting. The team is running back in. We're hearing shouts now. He's, he's alive. I'll repeat for the mic as best I can. Uh, it's okay, he says. I just went for a bit of a swim. This chamber is quite deep, definitely human-made, maybe a cistern. Could someone possibly turn on some lights? Dr. McElroy is looking a bit shaken up, but she seems to be going a step farther than that. She's unpacking the climbing equipment. We weren't expecting this dig to allow for much vertical distance, but hopefully the gear has enough reach to- Yes, doctor. Am I- it, yes, of course I want to come with you. Harness me up. This is Alexis Bradley being lowered into the ancient structure just unearthed here on Termish Key. It's about 20 feet from the ceiling to the water level in here, and it looks like at least half of the chamber is submerged. With the lighting set up, it doesn't appear to be a cistern. There's an elevated stone bench high and wide enough for us to stand on, suggesting a seat of political power, or possibly a temple. I should be able to set my feet down on it soon. This is much larger than anything we expected to find built on a small marsh island. It's mostly constructed of rocks similar to the ones along the shoreline, though the scope suggests that they may have been imported from other nearby landmasses. The sphagnum moss has gotten quite a foothold in here over the years. There's a vat next to the bench that's overflowing with green and yellow like a fountain. The foundation of the structure has sunk unevenly at a slant of about 15 degrees, and the vat of moss is now the highest point inside this room. I can see the upper sliver of a colorful mural next to it, not enough for me to guess what it might depict. I've reached the bench now. Our climbing supervisor is removing my harness for the next person. Dr. McElroy, what are your first thoughts upon seeing this place? And she's just jumped into the water. With one of my body mics. Now she's wiping the moss that's gathered at the waterline off the top of the mural for a better look, while screaming and laughing at the same time. I can't catch any words I could confidently repeat without looking them up, but Finn seems to understand, and now he's shrieking with laughter too, and they're trying to hug and tread water at the same time. I think it's fair to say everyone's very excited about this. This is Alexis Bradley reporting from the ruins of what Dr. McElroy has just confirmed to be a small, but until now, entirely unknown civilization. Although the team is currently only able to explore below the waterline with the use of scuba equipment, 
they have already discovered several samples of a written language distinct from any used by the ancient Celts, Germans, Romans, French, or Norse. This uniqueness is consistent with the styling of the architecture. The team has also detected several smaller buildings surrounding the temple. Because of their size, the roofs of these buildings are buried too far beneath the surface of the marsh to reach without more sophisticated drainage equipment. But their presence supports the current hypothesis that Termish Key was not simply a ceremonial site. It was, in all likelihood, a home. We are, of course, only in the very earliest stages of exploring where the people of Termishki may have come from or what may have happened to them, but the temple alone is full of fascinating clues. Firstly, upon closer inspection, the mural seems to show contact taking place between Termishki and another people. The event is depicted with apparent reverence, with the visitors presenting a basket of what might be gold to someone seated on the elevated bench, and then the Termishki people working together to build their city including the temple itself. Dr. McElroy notes that the bench might be a pre-existing symbol of leadership for the Termishki people, so the mural doesn't necessarily mean that this specific bench existed before the rest of the temple. The other especially telling, though rather more gruesome, thing we found within this main audience chamber is a total of no fewer than 11 preserved human bodies. Most of them appear to be under the age of 30, and unlike most bog-preserved bodies found in the British Isles, they have none of the obvious signs of trauma one would expect to see on victims of sacrifice or execution. In fact, there's nothing about the placement or adornment of any of the remains that suggests the observance of any kind of death ritual at all, almost as if the temple was simply the place they all happened to be when they died. Combined with how readily another young, seemingly uninjured set of remains was discovered during the search for Linda Milton, the signs point to a single, sudden extinction event for the people of Termishki. What might that event have been? A methane cloud? A plague? Are curses still on the table? And if ancient visitors did bring a gift of gold to Termishki, where is it now? Personal notes. I've just had the best day of work I've ever had in my life. I have never been so completely in the zone. After I sent out my morning sound clip, I sat and watched the crew making their exploration plans for the day. And I was overcome with... Let's call it what it is. Jealousy. I don't know why I was jealous that they were going to be digging through the muck while I was standing back and documenting, but I was. So I put my mic down, and I asked Dr. McElroy if there was anything I could do to help, figuring I could describe it later in a more hands-on way. So she told me, I think she was setting me up to quit at first, she told me I could help her map the town around the temple. But I did it. I went out there with her, wading through the mud and feeling around with collapsible sounding rods, and after four hours of that, out of the blue, she apologized for trying to exclude me. And honestly, I'm pretty embarrassed by how hung up I've been on trying to impress her. At that moment, it, just, it all suddenly felt so silly. We focused on the work. Just the work, and it was amazing. Everyone and everything functioning together to tear through what needed to be done faster than anyone's estimates. And later, she let me come diving with her, to retrieve a box from the bottom of the temple audience chamber, 
which turned out to be full of wheat kernels, so we can probably rule out famine as a cause of death, at least for the people found inside. I kept thinking about all the dangers of touching standing water, even when it's not full of possible plague victims, but I jumped in anyway. And when she reminded me that it's basically impossible for microorganisms to survive in the water here, which is why nothing really decomposes in it, I was almost disappointed. Just because when I jumped in to get the job done without knowing it was safe, I kind of impressed myself for a change. We worked all the way through to one in the morning, and now, sitting alone in my tent, I still don't want the day to end. Every muscle in my body is sore. My hands are so chafed that they're bleeding, and it's even colder tonight than last night. But I've kept going this long, and it seems like a waste now. A letdown to stop here instead of seeing how much further we could have gone. Maybe I'll just stay up and review notes for a while. This is Alexis Bradley, reporting from the Dagon Termishki, where Gary from Craft Services has decided that we're not allowed to start yet. Everyone, and I mean everyone, woke up ready to hit the ground running this morning, but Gary is holding the sounding rods and scuba gear hostage on his boat until we agree to eat the pancake breakfast he got up at four this morning to make. Nobody asked him to get up at four, by the way. We've been having tea and packaged pastries for breakfast so far, and no one's complained. Was that Gary? No, really, I didn't hear you. He's shouting that something's wrong with us, and we have to prove him wrong by taking a bite. One bite, you let us get on with it. Fine, give me that. I... I... Gary has just handed me a plate with a stack of warm pancakes with a melting pad of butter on top, and a cascade of maple syrup running down it. The smell of it is so rich that my mouth started watering as soon as I took a breath with the plate in my hand. It looks absurdly good, and I do mean absurdly. Like something we should be eating at the end of a project, not on some random morning in the middle. No. No, it's like something you'd have to solve all the world's problems to deserve to put in your mouth. And it's going to completely ruin the mental clarity I'm getting from my empty stomach right now, but in the name of getting anything done at all, I'm going to take the one agreed-upon bite. In a moment. I'm going to. I'm trying to move the fork to my mouth. I I'm sorry, is anyone else willing to humor Gary? Nope. Sorry, I shouldn't ask that of someone else. Oh, shit, he's right, isn't he? Alexis Bradley, reporting from the outbreak site of an unknown illness here on Termishki. I've spoken a little more with Gary about what brought on the pancake stunt. Apparently, he was having difficulty sleeping last night, along with myself and everyone else I've gotten a chance to ask. In the pre-dawn hours, he decided that, since he was sure to be exhausted later in the day no matter what, something good might as well come from his being awake, so he got up, fired up the camp stoves, and broke into his special reserve of supplies to make us all something that would keep us too full to care if lunch and dinner turned out underwhelming. He realized while he was cooking that the smell was giving him an odd feeling, 
both powerfully wanting to eat and not wanting to eat at the same time, but he attributed it to his sleep cycle being out of whack. It was when multiple other people started leaving their tents before wake-up call, all of them turning down breakfast for no particular reason, that he, in his own words, had a fit of panicked zeal for the public health. He said that this is by no means the first time he's known, through his work, that others were sick before they would admit it themselves. This past couple years especially, he's often heard people complain of a lack of taste and smell, while refusing to accept that the problem was not with the food that he'd served them. On this expedition of all places, he said, someone had to believe him. Dr. McElroy and the rest of the scientific minds on this expedition are now doing their best to follow up on his suspicions. So far, that consists of contacting colleagues on the main island and conjecturing based on memories of college electives outside their main fields of study. We have no medical specialists here on Termishki except for Shannon, our paramedic. Gary is trying to rest now. I can hear him tossing and turning in his tent, but we won't disturb him, just in case he does manage to settle down eventually. No one else has managed, but no one else is trying. I'd like to believe that we would have figured out something was wrong eventually, based on the way everyone's acting today. But then again, everyone seems reluctant to acknowledge their own altered behavior, even knowing what to look for. Glancing around the island right now, I can see three technicians racing each other around the perimeter barefoot. Shannon is shouting at them to stop, but seems more interested in administering a series of injections to the back of her own hand, which she has declined to explain to me beyond calling them routine. Finn has started digging a hole in an area we probed yesterday, but that Dr. McElroy hasn't mentioned any specific excavation plans for yet. She isn't trying to stop him. At the moment, she's sitting in the marsh examining plant matter with a field microscope, instead of bringing it to the platform where she could use superior equipment without letting the water pour down the inside of her boots. Maybe a demonstration as dramatic as Gary's was the only way to get us to notice at all. Personal notes. To be honest, I'm still having trouble believing all this myself. Or rather, I believe it completely one moment on a rational level, and the next moment, all I want to do is pull out my phone and work on my tax return. And I know that's something I'd never normally do in January, right in the middle of a breaking story, but it's so responsible so reasonable that it's hard to convince myself that it could be symptomatic of a problem. Everything I do or don't do, every impulse I feel, follow, or reject, I find myself wondering what it means, whether it has some source or purpose that is not of myself. But like Gary said, if I can't stop this disruption. Good things might as well come of it. Alexis Bradley reporting with a possible development. In an attempt to understand how an uninhabited wetland with antimicrobial properties could have caused this reaction in a crew of over 30 people, barring an actual supernatural curse, Dr. McElroy has taken a closer look at the uniquely colorful sphagnum moss we've been wading through. 
it turns out that the dark yellow stripes are not a natural part of the moss's coloration or life cycle. They're a parasitic fungus. Peat bogs are not antifungal. Most fungi pose no threat to humans as long as we don't eat anything we're not sure of. But there are those varieties that release toxic or mind-altering spores. With luck, we may all be experiencing, well, a bad drug trip. However, there are also rare types of fungi that can act as pathogens, much like viruses and bacteria, when interacting with human physiology. In other words, we could be contagious. The assistance that was originally supposed to arrive today from both the National Museum of Ireland and the GNBCI's cold case unit has been halted, and a quarantine zone has been established around Termishki, as well as Gary's catering facility and home on the main island. Thankfully, he lives alone and has been picking up our food shipments from the facility warehouse without help from other staff, so there's a decent chance that, even if we are contagious, we haven't spread it beyond the crew. The Department of Health is working on a way to separate us from the apparent source of the problem without endangering others. So far, our observed symptoms include mania, insomnia, and not exactly loss of appetite, but... What did you call it, doctor? Cherophobia. Essentially, an intense fear of anything that might result in comfort or decreased suffering. In short, not one of us has been able to sleep since the syndrome manifested, beyond a few seconds of nodding off on our feet. Nor have we been able to eat anything that might commonly be considered appetizing. The pancakes have gone untouched, even after turning cold and stale, along with all our packaged meals. A few hours ago, Gary came up with the idea of mixing some more of the plain, raw pancake batter, and most of us, including myself, have been able to force down at least a few spoonfuls. Hopefully, that'll be enough to keep us going for a while as we wait for more information. More than anything, the feeling of inactivity is intolerable. Worse than the cold, or the aches, or even the untrustworthy-seeming siren scent of food. I've just suggested to Dr. McElroy that, rather than surrendering ourselves to separate, random preoccupations, we could all try to direct our restlessness, for as long as we're stuck here with it, toward what we originally came here to do. There's no shortage of work to be done on that front, after all. She's addressing the crew now. It's not quite the same as the rousing, clear-eyed welcome speech she gave on the first day, but they seem to be in agreement. So, stay with us for more secrets of Termish Key. Personal notes. Actually, it's getting hard to tell the difference. I've already been caught swearing during an essential moment of capturing the story, and Riley didn't even complain about it when she acknowledged receipt of that recording. I'm probably going to end up sending all of these to her anyway. I'm not an impartial observer on an archaeological dig anymore. I'm a subject within a story of survival in progress, and that shift doesn't leave any room for a backstage. It's all the story now. So, sorry, Riley, for all the shit you're about to hear me talking. You're not so bad. No matter what happens, thank you for letting me be here. Funny thing is, 
There are more people listening now than there ever were when this was about ancient Termishki, or even Linda Milton. I wonder if that would always strike me as disheartening, or if the fungus is compelling me to find a way to be unhappy about getting everything I always wanted. I'm standing on the bench of the temple, assisting in a secondary examination of the contents from the new perspective our search has taken. Dr. McElroy, could you bring everyone up to speed? Now she's doing that mumbling and pantomime thing she only does when the mic is on. I'm not passive-aggressive, you're passive-aggressive. What happened to the woman I went mapping with for 16 hours straight? Can we just get one simple thing done today? Why is that so hard? What? I... Yes, you are correct. Dr. McElroy reminds me that it has now been three days since either of us slept. Yes, and that this very insistent feeling that that's no excuse is a result of the condition. That said, we took the trouble to rappel down here again, and I have a mic, so I'm going to get this update done. Upon closer inspection, the image we originally took to be a basket of gold in the mural looks an awful lot like the yellow fungus especially considering its juxtaposition with the vat full of contaminated moss. Dr. McElroy's current hypothesis is that the moss and fungus did not become so concentrated in that spot by happenstance. She believes that the unknown visitors presented the fungus to the ancient ruler of Termishki, possibly as a sort of performance enhancer. The ruler then distributed the fungus to the people here, right where we're standing, as part of a religious ritual, governing practice, or social event. On an island this small, the whole population may have gathered together for various purposes on a regular basis. The fungus worked as advertised at first. It made the people more productive, more focused, enabling them to accomplish extraordinary things on a very short timeline, including building most of what we've found here. But then, the side effects caught up. Maybe the people of Termishki were conned by the visitors, or maybe the fungus mutated in transit. Or maybe its effects can be countered with something the visitors took so much for granted at home that they didn't think to include it in the gift. In any case, almost as soon as the grand little city on Termishki was finished, it became a ghost town, its people dropping dead of starvation, exposure, and exhaustion, surrounded by full food stores, opulent shelter, and more freshly finished work than most settlements of comparable size could have produced in a decade. What? I'll take a break when you do, Doctor. So why didn't anyone find Linda Milton before now? Sorry, listeners. Dr. McElroy and I are now standing beside Milton's remains and the small stone structure found with them. I am, perhaps fancifully, staring down at Milton's preserved face, trying to read her last thoughts in its faintly withered musculature. Her expression is, of course, slack and relatively non-existent. But there's a faint downward turn to the corners of her mouth that looks to me like determination. It's hard to imagine how that expression could have been met with defeat, and the rest of the story surrounding her disappearance offers no clarification. It would have been one thing if she'd been deliberately quarantined to Termishki, but if the rescue workers who came looking for her didn't know there was anything wrong with them yet, wouldn't they have doubled down and tried to finish the job at all costs? No, don't speak into the mic, Doc. 
It'd be so unpoetic at this point, don't you think? I don't think I could make up for accepting a gift like that. Yeah. Maybe you're right, but with Milton working so hard to signal for them, how could they have missed her even the first time around? Oh. Oh, right. That was my guess about what she was doing, wasn't it? You still don't think it was a signal? A warning, maybe? Finn took off his coat today, and that was it. Once it got into all of our heads that being here without a coat was an option, all the rest of the coats hit the ground in a wave. I should be mapping the underground village, but I can't break my fascination with my own shivering. I've never paid any attention to shivers before, except to stop them as quickly as possible. I've never experienced how intense they can be, how long they can last. Like a tiny but shockingly powerful motor installed in my chest with a mind of its own. The, the idea of smothering its work under that coat again and forgetting it feels tragically crass. The health department says they're ready to evacuate us to a secure facility on the main island to see if stopping the ongoing exposure to the fungus causes the symptoms to subside. I think we've all already come to the conclusion that it won't. The coroner turned dead army recruit. The crooked tour guide turned dead monk. None of them got better. Gary has pointed out that none of them ended the world, either. And Dr. McElroy said something half-hearted about how their cases, unlike ours, went unrecognized, so they couldn't have been treated. The real question is not so much whether there's a possibility of saving us. It's whether it's worth it. The danger to other people, not to mention the torture of being confined to a warm prison with a roof and beds and therapy and regularly scheduled mandatory mealtimes, separated from work and denied the chance to see how far we could have gone, what wonder we could have accomplished and what imagined limits our bodies might have exceeded. Is that worth the small chance that a group of soft people untouched by the fungus might somehow chart us a course to the happy ending that none of us can remember wanting? The health department won't even acknowledge this as a valid question, which isn't instilling me with great confidence. But they have admitted that they're going to need our full cooperation to minimize the risk to the rescue workers. In other words, they can't make us go if we don't let them. Three people have stopped shivering and either fallen or lain down. Finn happened to fall on the wooden platform, and he's still shouting for someone to help him up so that he can take a sample of the ancient construction mortar. But when anyone tries, he topples right back over again. The other two are in the marsh somewhere. The rescue boats have arrived, and someone in a hazard suit is yelling at us over a loudspeaker. It's very distracting. I told Dr. McElroy that I think the only responsible thing for any of us to do is die here. Only after heartily agreeing with me 
Did she ask me if I think it's a logical act of selflessness, or if it's the illness talking? I can't tell. I only know it's what's going to happen. But not before we know everything there is to know about the people of Termishki. I am a being of untapped strength and potential. My body is a remarkable and resilient machine. I am capable of grit and sacrifice far beyond the bounds of my once timid and self-coddling imagination. I know now what this pile of rocks beside me was for. When Linda Milton knelt in this mud where I am now, she had no need to signal for a rescue party and could not trust them to obey any warning. When they came for her, she hid, just as any of us would do. And when they left again, she continued her work, her work of dragging rocks from the shore and stacking them on top of each other for the simple and noble purpose of seeing how high they could go, how much weight her arms could carry, how many trips her legs could make. Dr. McElroy has gone to chart a possible tunnel off the temple for us to explore. She's been gone some hours now, but she should be back soon. This is Alexis Bradley, reporting from Termishki, where there's so much more to see. I'm... I'm lying down, but not by choice. I'm going to get up in a minute. I'm going to get up. Alexis Bradley reporting was written and performed by Fiona J.R. Tichinell. Narration was provided by Matt Carter. This episode was edited by Fiona J.R. Tichinell and Matt Carter. The Shadow Storyteller's theme written and performed by Dennis Tichinell. The Shadow Storyteller's artwork by Kristen McQuiggan of Drop Dead Designs. Special thanks to Lisa Onzo and Greg Bowles for the use of their guest room in this recording. For more information on The Shadow Storytellers podcast and our other fiction works, please visit our website at theshadowstorytellers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe for more information on upcoming episodes. We hope you had fun, and we'll see you again soon.